so without further ado, I will introduce our, our evening uh, lecturer. It's Neil Berthelston. Uh, he, he works at the uh, international level with a number of health technology uh, assessment agencies, uh, really with the remit to try and align process and mechanism across those agencies. He is the chair uh, of the HTA International Patient and Citizen uh, Involvement Group. So he has a strong uh, uh, working relationship with patients and involving patients uh, in uh, health technology assessment processes. And he's also on the board member of Patient Focused Medicines Development. And that's really trying to better promote um, how evidence can be generated for all different stakeholders uh, used in the decision-making process. So without uh, further ado, I will hand you over to Neil. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. And, and thank you for having me here. And thank you for being here. So what I really want to take you through today is, you know, and I've, I've seen that, you know, the kinds of information, those of you that are on, on, on the MSc course, the kinds of information you've been looking at, and you've been going into sort of health economics, really understanding some of the mechanisms behind HTA. What I want to do tonight is talk at a bit of a higher level about how HTA bodies work with each other, how they learn from each other, and how sometimes they can't learn from each other and they can't work with each other because I think that's really important to understand where the barriers are. And in the second half, one of the areas where we're seeing a lot of alignment in HTA is around patient involvement in the process. So I want to take a deeper dive into patient involvement in HTA. So the perspective I'm bringing, this just builds on what Stuart has said, but really I work with HTA bodies and regulators, with patient groups, with industry, with academic researchers, all with the aim of getting people to play nicely together for a change, you know, and learn from one another, and, and really understanding the different perspectives and the different limits different stakeholders have. So often what I hear from the industry or from patient groups is they often say to me, why can't HTA change? And HTA often finds it really difficult to change because of the rules behind which they've been set up. There's a lot of reasons why it's quite hard to change processes like HTA. And we have to understand what those limits are and why it's hard to change HTA before we can convince them to at least try to change sometimes. So I work with HTA International. So for those of you that don't know, that's the International Scientific Society for Health Technology Assessment. Um, Stuart and I, uh, that's how we got to know each other on Paradigm, which was an international collaboration. And in particular, um, the area that I was looking at was how patients can be involved in early dialogues with HTA bodies. And those early dialogues, that's that first time that a company that's developing a medicine can go to a HTA body and say, can you give me a bit of advice here? What kind of evidence would you be looking for? And we worked with about 15 HTA bodies to develop that piece of work. And with patient-focused medicines development, I just wanted to flag up a new and emerging discipline of evidence, which is called patient experience data. And it's new. It's coming along, and one of the things we're trying to do with patient-focused medicines development is say, let's not make this one of these situations where the regulators have one set of evidence that they look at, and HTA bodies have another set of evidence. So from the very start, we're trying to pull everybody together to say, 
let's make sure this new class of evidence is usable both for regulatory and HTA purposes. So what I'm going to take you through today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the context, the context within which HTA sits, and what is the impact of that context for international alignment. Then we'll take a deeper dive into patient involvement, and I'll go through a couple of case studies. So when we think about the context, you've probably seen this, but this is the 2020 definition of HTA. And I want to just flag those two elements that you can see in bold, that this is a multidisciplinary process, so not, no one stakeholder is able to do HTA on their own. They need the other stakeholders to come together in order to make that process. And it informs decision-making. And I really want to focus on that inform because there are some myths that people have about HTA. I'm sure you don't have them because you've been studying this, but the myths are that HTA bodies decide which medicines or similar technologies we have access to, or that determining access to medicine becomes purely evidence-based. And I know that's how a lot of people think about HTA, but in fact, it's the politicians who ultimately decide. Okay. This is from a report, it's done by the World Health Organization and the European Union, and they look at this interface between HTA and health policy. And they say HTA provides evidence-based input. So again, this input informing, it promotes evidence-informed policymaking. So it just promotes it, it doesn't make it happen. And they say it offers a bridge between the research and the policy community. So you can already see that HTA lives in this very unsafe world. On one side, you've got all these people creating evidence. And on the other side, you've got all the policymakers. And it's HTA that sort of sits between those two and tries to make sense of it. So policymakers decide within each country the overall resources available to healthcare. They decide whether there's more spent on schools and less on healthcare or vice versa, for example. Within healthcare, they will decide where the priority should be. So in one country, they might say, we have a real problem with long-term conditions like diabetes and heart disease. So we want to put more money into treating diabetes and heart disease. Another country could say, we think that's okay, but we think we have a real problem with rare diseases. So we want to put more money into understanding and treating rare diseases. They're policy decisions, they're not HTA decisions. Importantly, it's also the policymakers and the governments that decide how much resources a HTA body has. How many people can work in that HTA body? How much money do they have? And that has a massive impact on the methods that that HTA body can use. They can't do anything too complicated if they only have a few people in order to do all those things. And finally, it's the policymakers that decides what kind of HTA happens in their country. So what's the focus of that HTA? Is it only going to look at the clinical evidence? Or is it also going to look at the health economic evidence? Is it going to look societal evidence? Some of them do that too. All of those are political decisions that are told to the HTA. This is how we want you to operate. 
And so I think it's really important to keep that in mind. And I want to show you one example to show how much politics determines access to medicines. So it's a UK example I've picked because we're here. But in the early 2010s, there was a real problem in the UK of accessing cancer medicines. So new cancer medicines would come out, they would be assessed by the health technology agency called NICE here in the UK, and NICE would say usually mm, we will not recommend this for reimbursement within the National Health Service. And yet people in France had access to the medicine and people in Germany had access to the medicine. So there suddenly be, became a lot of political pressure why do we in the UK not have access to the same cancer medicines as people in other countries? And there were three strategies the government could have tried here. The first thing they could have tried is to say, we're going to do nothing because we believe in our HTA process and if the medicines don't bring value, then we shouldn't pay for them. So we should carry on with the system as it stands. The second thing they could do is to say, we think this shows there's a problem with how HTA is conducted in the UK. So we want to change the methods of HTA in the UK so that we get more access to cancer medicines. Or they could have said the third thing, which is, we will just throw money at this problem and we will sidestep the HTA process using separate pots of money. And of course they went for option C. So they created something called the Cancer Drugs Fund and you can see this is a quote from the Lancet at that time saying this is a triumph of political expediency over rationality. So instead of solving the original problem they just threw a lot of money at the problem to hope it went to, goes away. But it didn't go away. So this is just a few years later you know, the government at the time having to inject another £400 million into that fund just to keep it going. And you can see from the headline that this is seen as a party political uh, movement. It's not seen as a HTA movement. So you can see how politics can determine the access to medicines regardless of what a HTA body says. And this creates a challenge when we're thinking about aligning HTA systems. Because if HTA systems are not purely their evidence-based systems, but if they sit within political context, then it becomes much harder for alignment to happen. So let's talk about that. When I think of alignment, I think of it in two ways. So on the left-hand side, I call that informal alignment, and on the right-hand side, the more formal kinds of alignment. So on the left-hand side, you share best practices. A HTA body might speak to another HTA body and say, we tried this, it was really good, you should try it too. They partner on projects together. doesn't mean they're going to change their HTA system, but at least they partner on projects together. And in terms of discussions with regulators, yeah, they can have discussions with regulators, they can hear what each side is doing. It doesn't mean that they have to change anything. On this side though, on the right-hand side, you have more formal networks that, that have been created. Uh, a lot of these actually in Europe, because that's where a lot of the challenges first happened, where we saw the divergence of HTA bodies. So you had formal networks created, like UNETA, 
really charged with coming up with a common model for how you do HTA, which would hopefully then filter out to all the countries so alignment would happen. That didn't work at all. And so they said, OK, let's come up with some legislation. Let's make laws at the EU level that force people to align the way that they do HTA. And I'll talk about that later, and you can see that that's not really going to happen either. And then what is successful is what happens in a country. So often the really good alignment you see is at the national level between different parts of the healthcare system, including HTA. So HTA tends to work very well with other parts of the healthcare system locally. They just find it really hard to make decisions that change the way they work at the national level. So when we look at this informal side, you know, different ways that this can happen. It can happen through organisations like HTAI. They do a lot of best practice sharing. It can happen through consortium that have multiple HTA bodies involved working on a project together. And it can happen through just discussions that naturally happen between different bodies. You know, and just as an example, I pulled together some things from HTAI. You know, they run a global policy forum twice a year. They invite HTA bodies from around the world to that forum, as well as people from the industry and others. And they look at these bigger issues that they don't quite know how to solve yet. How are we really going to deal with managed entry agreements in the future? How will they evolve? How do we get better at disinvesting from old technology or inefficient technology? And how do we deal with value-based decision-making? What does good look like there? They also have a lot of specialist groups that look at one particular area of HTA. So there's a group looking just at real-world evidence, trying to understand how real-world evidence is used by HTA bodies. And they're thinking about the future as well. How does artificial intelligence and machine learning lead to better real-world evidence that creates better information for HTA? And of course, they have an annual meeting, an annual conference, and that is probably the place where most alignment happens. You know, four days, in one place, everyone together, that's where the magic happens. But the right-hand side of that circle, I'm sorry to say, is really, really hard. You know, this idea that HTA bodies can change the way they work just by sharing ideas, it doesn't really work. So, as I've said before, UNETA was charged with creating a sort of common model for HTA that would then sort of be taken up by the various national HTA bodies. And actually, it always hits up against this wall of, in my country, I think we're doing HTA better than that model. So we want to stick with what we've got. You know, so it's not invented here syndrome, you know. Um, we've developed the best HTA that, that, that reflects our societal values, and we don't want to change that. I'll talk about the second one in a moment, the, 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 the um, EU legislation, but I believe, it's my opinion, that it's been watered down too much. I honestly don't see how it's going to work. But And then we see positive things happening at the national level. But let's talk about that EU thing. The challenge is still that healthcare budgets are set and managed by national governments. They're not managed collectively across multiple nations. 
And so the danger is, or the fear is, that if you have an international HTA process, that that could force governments to spend money that they were not planning to spend, or to make different investment decisions than they were planning to make. And so there was a lot of pushback about how much of a remit would this HTA system have. And the second thing is the thing I was alluding to a few minutes ago, that they are really focused on we have the best model for HTA. So if you're going to create a European-wide HTA, which model do you choose? You know, whichever one you choose, a lot of people are going to be unhappy, you know? So what they did was they said, okay, we will take the least controversial part of HTA and only make that Europe-wide. So the very first, if you like, the, the, the very main analysis of HTA is looking at the clinical effectiveness relative to what's available today. So relative clinical effectiveness. That assessment is due to happen jointly. So it'll happen in one place and everyone will accept that report and say, okay, at least we don't have to redo that at the national level. But the economic and pricing and all of those other things that lead to a yes or a no, that stays at the national level. So it still means you're going to have very divergent decisions from country to country. And actually, even the first thing I said is not true, because there was a lot of pushback about certain countries saying, but we think our system is better than what you're planning to do. So we don't want to take this Europe-wide report. We don't want to use it. We want to do our own. So they've made it so it's not mandatory for countries to use this, 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 this EU-wide report. And so we've left with a system now that's, that's even more fragmented, and nobody knows who's going to take those reports up or not when it actually starts going forward. And so the, my last slide for this section is really, you know, I think that fragmentation is part of the nature of having national healthcare budgets. I find it difficult to see a future where you're going to have common decisions made that impact the way that governments spend money nationally, you know, at a supranational level. And you're always going to have, for societal reasons and economic reasons, different focuses to your HTA. You're going to have HTAs that look, some of them will say, actually, we just, all we care about is the clinical outcomes. We will pay for the clinical outcomes, but we're not paying for anything more. And you'll have others that say, yeah, but we think the patient impacts also need to be part of the value. So we want to look at that as well. And then you'll have others that say, we believe those two things, but we think we should also be thinking about the societal impacts. You know, and some Scandinavians of Sweden, in some of, in some of their re results, they go that far um, along there. And you're still going to have arguments about what evidence they accept. You know, some will say, we don't agree with your model, we don't agree with the, uh, the surrogate endpoints you've used, we think you should have looked for actual hard outcomes. And some will love patient-relevant evidence, like patient-reported outcome measures and some hate it, you know, and I think we're still in this fragmented world. But for those of you that are interested in HTA, that's what makes it so interesting. I mean, if everybody did it exactly the same, there would be nothing to learn and there would be nothing to compare. 
So I love the fact that this is still quite difficult to navigate because each of those difficulties, each of those hurdles is an opportunity to learn what works best and what doesn't. Moving on to part two, patient involvement. It's related actually because I see patient involvement and a really good example of where the agencies have aligned and learned from each other and moved this forward. Okay, so this idea that alignment doesn't happen, patient involvement I think is an exception to that rule. So 1970s, would you believe that HTA was really invented by America in the 1970s? It was, well mainly, yeah. The Office of Technology Assessment was a federal office founded in the early 70s, I think it ran until about 1992. And in 76, they, they, they produced some guidance of how to do health technology assessment. Um, and they said it's impossible to do a HTA without thinking about patients, families and society as well as everything else. Okay? And yet, when the HTA bodies in Europe and Canada and Australia and elsewhere started to form in the 90s and 2000s, they just forgot that advice and they didn't bother involving patients. And yet, by the time you get to 2017, this man here, Brian O'Rourke, he was um, the, the head of CADETH, which is the Canadian Health Technology Assessor. And he said quite clearly, if you're not involving patients, you're not doing HTA. So there was a massive change that happened between the 2000s and by the time we get to 2017. Okay, and today what we see is we see patients being involved in multiple parts of the HTA process. Yes, they input into the assessment process, but they also get active in the early dialogues years before an assessment. They're inputting increasingly into managed entry agreements, especially to make sure that they're manageable for patients. The first managed entry agreements included a lot of monitoring trips and extra visits um, for patients in order to prove that the medicine was still working. And if they missed some of those visits, they were taken off the treatment. You know, so, so, so patients need to be involved in these. They're increasingly providing their own data into <coughs> HTA processes, helping HTA bodies understand what it's like to live with this disease. They advise on the impact of the healthcare system. Now, drug companies often say to HTA bodies, our medicine is so fantastic that it's going to change the way that this, this disease is treated. Patients will not be treated in the old way once we have this treatment. And that's great, but you need to check if the healthcare system needs to change, what's the <coughs> impact on that change on patients? And finally, when you have a HTA that's covering a disease area that they've not looked at for a long time or they've never looked at before, they often do scoping meetings to understand from a patient what it's like to live with that disease. So they can think about that before they get into the HTA. This, is, this changes all the time, this map, by the way. So I wouldn't focus too much on how this all details out because next year it'll be different again. But you have, a lot of countries have something called patient group submissions. So that's where they invite patient groups, not individual patients, patient groups, to submit evidence into a HTA. Others have consultations. 
So public consultations where the whole public, they could be nurses, doctors, patients, family members, whoever, they can input into a process. Usually it's like a website where you can, you can sort of like add your, your comments in. Uh, we, so we're seeing Germany is a bit of an outlier, but a really interesting patient involvement process. They do it on two levels. They say, our assessment will only consider evidence that we think is patient relevant. So there's always this argument with drug companies and the GBA in Germany about what is patient relevant. You know, um, but they also have a really interesting mechanism for involving patients where they, they really basically give money to four patient associations and say, with this money, you make sure we have patients in our process. And it's a way of ensuring that the patients in the process have not received any funding from the industry. Okay, so they do it. So why do HTA bodies involve patients? Well, as I've said before, at first they said, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. So they said, okay, do you know what? This is dead easy. We're clever people. Okay, so the industry provides us with the evidence. And we can look at the ev evidence. We can start reviewing it. We can bring in clinicians to the table and we can bring in health economists to the table. And together we can debate the evidence and then we can make a decision. You know, should we reimburse, should we recommend that this is reimbursed? And if so, to whom? And how do we reimburse it? Okay, dead easy. Except it's not because the clinical evidence never tells the whole story, especially when it's a new product. The clinical studies only provide part of the story. They need to be extrapolated to match the healthcare population in that country. So the clinical trial population is usually very tightly defined. And so there's this big question, how are the results from this clinical trial really going to be reflected in real people on the ground in our country? The second thing is that clinical trials, because the regulators are getting faster and faster at approving medicines, clinical trials are getting shorter and shorter in length. You know, you can almost see it on a graph, yeah? And it means that there's virtually no evidence about the duration of response from a medicine at launch. So we know it might be expensive, and we know it works at first or within the first 24 or 48 weeks, but we don't know much more than that. So if we're gonna pay this much for it, can we at least start to think about whether it's going to work in the longer term? How many years is it going to work for? That sort of thing. Quality of life and patient reported outcome measures are really hard to interpret, especially for a HTA. There's often really big challenges with missing data in patient reported outcomes. It's often not talked about, but there's always a lot of missing data in patient reported outcomes. And how that's dealt with statistically can completely change the shape of that evidence point. There's also been a move over the last five, ten years to really build new patient reported outcome tools that are specific to each particular disease for good reason. You know, because we want to know as much detail about what it's like to live with that disease. But when you have so many different patient reported outcome tools, how can a HTA body keep on top of them all? How can it compare the results of one tool that was used by one company compared to the results of a different tool used by a different company? So it becomes really, really complicated. And then this, this whole chestnut here, this is, this is the one that always brings down a HTA, is, is what did you use as your comparator in your clinical studies? 
you know. And so you often have really credible questions to ask. Why did you pick that comparator? We don't use that, we don't use that drug in our, in our country. So actually your data means nothing to us. We can't really understand what it's telling us. And as I mentioned before, when you have a lot of innovation in a particular disease area, the clinical trials never reflect the most recent innovation. So if you've got, let me give you an example, you've got a new treatment that comes out for skin cancer. But just two years ago, there was a great new treatment that came out for skin cancer that changed the landscape of skin cancer. But your clinical trial never measured that because that treatment wasn't there then. You know, so as a HTA, that creates a massive problem. You know, how does this latest innovation compare to a recent innovation? And we often don't have the answer. So we have all these uncertainties. And so the approach breaks down and you start to ask in the committee meetings, you know, these kinds of questions. You know, I can see your data, but I'm really starting to question what is the most meaningful part of your data I should be focusing on? What outcomes are important? You mentioned all of these different populations that we could potentially be reimbursing, but do we understand the particular needs of those populations? Is there a particular patient population that is really underserved, that has much higher needs, for example? In many diseases, skin diseases are a good example, so dermatology, skin diseases, you often have disease scores you know, numbers that attach to how severe this, this disease is. And it's sometimes really hard to link what those disease scores mean, an improvement of one point on that disease score, what does that really mean for a patient? If you're saying you're going to change the way that this whole disease is treated, have we thought about how that impacts the people who are treated? Ultimately, we're trying to answer this question quite clearly. Who will benefit most? and let's focus on them. And obviously, what is the, if you like, real value of the treatments? So in the round, based on what we know, what do we think the value is? And I argue that patients are the missing link in these deliberations. They're really good at explaining how a disease affects day-to-day -day life, what they can do, what they can't do. <coughs> they can translate the endpoints being measured, the patient-reported outcomes as well, into specific impacts that they experience every day. They can highlight if there's any change in these scores, what does that mean? You know, it, it, a two-point scale, oh, oh my god, that's transformative. I could do so much more if I improved by two points. Um, and they can clearly articulate how current ways of managing their disease is not good for them, or is not meeting their needs. And you can see here, I've highlighted specific twice here, and it's probably the word, if, I'm, if, if you were a patient, set of patient group people here, I would probably have said that at least 50 times already now, because I cannot emphasize enough that emotion does not help a HTA. So if a patient group comes into a HTA and says, oh my God, this disease is so difficult to live with, my life is hell, so many other patient groups in, with different diseases come in and say those things. It doesn't help the HTA body understand why is your life hell? Why is it so bad to live with this disease? So what I always say to patient groups is be specific. 
See, exactly, because of this symptom, I can't do this every day. And this second symptom stops me from doing this other thing. And then it's quite easy then for the HTA body to say, oh, but this new treatment, it actually deals with those symptoms really well. So it helps them link impact to the, you know, the treatment in front of them. Oh my God, time's rushing on. Okay, I'm going to be a bit quicker now. So they add patients into the mix and patients provide that context to them. We looked at this at HTAI. We did a big Delphi study internationally, multiple stakeholders. And we asked, you know, why should patients be involved in HTA? And the, the list is here, but I really want to focus on this relevance one, the first one. Patients have information and knowledge and experiences that no other stakeholder has. So the doctors cannot answer the same questions they can answer. The economists can't answer those questions either. And it's understanding that missing piece of knowledge that improves the quality of HTA. But people used to think that if we invited patients, patients would just be demanding we want access to everything. It turns out they don't. You know, what they say is, we want new drugs, but we don't want any drug and not at any price. We want drugs that are transformative. We want drugs that are really going to change the way we experience disease. And they can be as critical, if not more critical, of the industry when they think that the evidence that they've collected has not been good enough. You know, and I've heard lots of very difficult discussions between patient groups and the industry of why did you choose that as your comparator? Why did you only run the trial for 24 weeks? Why did you have this stupid exclusion criteria that doesn't match reality? You know, they will be just as critical of the evidence as the other stakeholders. How do they do it? I'm not going to go through this in detail. It's limited by all the things I mentioned earlier. What is the remit of that HTA? What is their role in that health system? Have they got the resources to do patient engagement? There's no point asking them to do it if they don't have the resources to do it. In their country, is there even a cultural and societal acceptance of patients and patient groups? It doesn't exist in every country. So sometimes you can't just transport a concept into a new country setting and expect it to live. You have to be respectful of the culture and society. The way that we see it work is on this sort of spectrum, informal through to the most formal here, where you have people from patient groups actually in the meetings. And I just want to just flick through this one, but this is a sort of generic process. Not every HTA has all these steps, and some have more steps than this. But generally, scoping phase happens in preparation of an upcoming HTA. Only happens really if there are big questions about we don't understand this disease, we've not looked at this disease for 15 years, and we need to understand if anything's changed, or this is a rare disease and we've never looked at this ever in our HTA body. Then often they'll have consultation and workshops with patient groups usually to help understand what are the main aspects of this disease they should be thinking about when they're organizing the HTA. You have the evidence submission phase. The industry submits their evidence, but this is also when a lot of HTA bodies reach out to patient groups and say, can you also submit evidence which we will consider 
alongside the industry evidence. You have a committee meeting, patient groups are usually there, sometimes individual patients are there. It depends on the HTA and it also depends on whether it's a rare disease HTA or a more common disease HTA. There's a lot of distinctions there. But at that committee meeting, the patient's role there are to give testimony and to answer any questions that come up from the other committee members. They're not official voting members of the committee, just as the industry is not official voting members of the committee. So I just want to be clear about this. You know, we have to, governance terms, we have to separate the interest of needing a treatment and wanting a treatment than voting for that treatment. So you often have citizens or patients that don't have that disease in the committee meeting who do have a vote, but the patients who will benefit from the decision will not have a vote. It's just good governance. Yep. Oh, sorry, I didn't finish that one. Um, discuss, discuss the uh, evidence. Make a sort of draft recommendation. There's usually a consultation period. Those patient groups that have been involved up to now are part of that consultation, but usually that's where it stops. It's not reopened to new patient groups. So you have to be involved, usually, in order to be in that consultation step. And then there might be a second committee meeting and a final sort of recommendation made. And you can see here that patients are involved potentially at every step along the way. Not every HTA body does that, but this is a sort of idealistic general example. These are the questions, to, you know, I think you were asking me earlier, sort of like, what is it that, about this consultation with patients? So this is from Scotland, but these same questions are asked in France, they're asked in Canada, that, you know, most HTA bodies that have this kind of approach where patients have a written submission ask similar questions to this. They want to know about what it's like to live with the disease, how well it's currently managed, without the new treatment. They want to know if they've been able to talk to anybody who's tried the new treatment. Maybe it's already been launched in a neighboring country or somebody's been on a clinical trial. They want to know how it's expected to improve the quality of life or the medical care of a patient and what they think the impact would have on families and carers. And finally, a really important one, they want to know are there any disadvantages to this new treatment? And they're very suspicious if the patient groups don't answer that question because there's no treatment ever made that is only positive. There will always be something to flag there. Case studies, very briefly. Right, so this one is a rare, it's reasonably recent. It's a rare disease treatment, very, very expensive. And I wanted to use this case study to show how patients can bring new concepts to the table that none of the other stakeholders have mentioned, okay? So this is for lipodystrophy, rare condition, quite complicated, different patients have different symptoms. Uh, it's poorly understood by the HTA body because it's a rare disease. This is quite common for rare diseases. And the industry and the, and the clinical partners were having this massive conversation about blood values, lab results 
you know, saying we can tell this medicine's working or not by looking at, uh, you know, the liver enzymes, the blood sugar, the triglycerides. So the conversation was very technical. It was really technical about lab values and what's the difference, you know, what does it mean to a patient if this lab value changes. And the patients there were saying, hold on a second, you've not even mentioned the most important thing for us with this disease. And the most important thing is we have this constant feeling of hunger. It's like being starved to death. It doesn't matter if we eat, it never goes away. Okay, so we cannot stop eating. We cannot stop feeling this intense starvation. For us, that means we have no social life. It means we can't go to work. Uh, it means that we cannot interact with people in a way that they can understand because we just can't stop eating, you know. And so they, they were fantastic. They brought to life the psychological, the daily, the social, the economic, to their own economy, the economic impacts of this symptom hadn't even been measured by the company, wasn't even part of the health economic model. So nobody brought up this subject, but they were so passionate that actually if you look at the final report of this, it's what the committee focused on in the end. They focused on this symptom and what an awful impact it had on people's lives. And they agreed that they were going to reimburse or recommend to, to reimburse the, the treatment because at least it seemed to have some effect against this symptom, or they hoped it would be. But it was just a shame that the company making the medicine never bothered to measure this. Bring it to a close as we come to the hour mark. I'd just like to thank Neil so much for coming no all this way. He's come from outside the UK today. And, and what a great talk. I <laughs> learn something every time. So thank you, Neil. Thank, thank you. you.